Hello, and welcome to this Joseph Rowntree Foundation podcast called Is Anyone Listening? about the lived experience of poverty. My name's Kenny Farkerson. I'm a journalist with The Times, and I'm joined today by two of the leading voices in the poverty debate in Scotland. First of all, Peter. So my name's uh, Peter Kelly. I'm director of the Poverty Alliance, and for those of the listeners who don't know, the Poverty Alliance is the national anti-poverty network in Scotland. We've been around for almost 30 years now, trying to find ways to tackle poverty in Scotland. And also? Uh, my name's Deborah Hay. It's a um, pleasure to be here. I'm the Scotland Policy Officer for Joseph Rowntree Foundation, an independent UK charity dedicated to solving poverty. Okay, so Deborah, we're here to mark something called Challenge Poverty Week. Um, set the scene for us. What is the scale of poverty in Scotland and what is the human cost? Well, despite being a, a wealthy country, unfortunately, too many people in Scotland are trapped in the in the grip of poverty. It, it, it isn't right, but over a million of Scotland's citizens are in poverty, 20%, 20% and 240,000 of whom are children. And by that, we mean, quite simply, that they do not have enough money to meet the basic essentials of, of living. And um, it's shocking that in this day and age, that is still the case. Uh, we know we can solve it, however. So the great thing about Challenge Poverty Week is it's as much about the solutions as about airing the problems. And we know that if we boost people's income and we reduce their costs, we can make an appreciable difference. And if you if you look at the child poverty statistics over the last couple of decades, you can see, or, or indeed with pensioners, you can see that we can make big, big impacts if we make the right policy decisions. Um, so solving poverty is not just about the numbers, but it is about making sure that all of us can participate in what is a just and, and compassionate society um, and ensuring that people don't have to make those kind of impossible decisions that we've we've seen so many headlines about, about making choice between heating or eating. Mm-hmm. And Peter, what do you hope to achieve with uh, Challenge Poverty Week? I mean, Deborah's just given us a very um, clear reason why we're running Challenge Poverty Week. We've been doing it now since 2013. And it's our attempt to really highlight not just what needs to be done, not just uh, what are the solutions that that we ought to be uh, undertaking, but to to profile, to showcase what people are doing, particularly in communities that, that that tackles poverty right now, whether that's mitigating the effects of low incomes or providing routes out of, of poverty for people. So Challenge Poverty Week will bring together this year, I think, hundreds of organisations um, delivering hundreds of events and activities that really showcase uh, solutions and will hopefully start to change the kind of conversation that we have about poverty in Scotland and that that, that has at its heart the, the experience of poverty and that involves people um, who are living on low incomes and finding those solutions to poverty. Good. Now, I wanted to ask you both about um, a book that was published last year by a Glasgow rapper called Darren McGarvey, and it won the Orwell Prize for political writing. It was called Poverty Safari, and it was um, critical of what is sometimes called the poverty industry, which is you guys, uh, fundamentally. Um, And the critique seemed to be that the conversation about poverty um, is dominated by people with little experience of being poor. Um, that middle class, middle class specialists in poverty have a, a, a we know best attitude, and, and that that fails to take into account a lived experience of poverty that's sometimes complex, sometimes problematic, sometimes not very pretty to see to watch. Um, 
and it and it doesn't conform doesn't doesn't conform to a middle class a liberal middle class value about how people should behave and how people should should act. Is 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 that critique fair? I'm going to ask you both. I think there's there's a lot in what what Darren um, has said about the role of the third sector. Uh, I am very sceptical, I have to say, about uh, that notion of of a poverty industry because that comes with it this implication that there's a self-interest, and and particularly in the part of the third sector, in maintaining current patterns of poverty. I've, you know, maybe I'm biased, but I've worked in the the third sector in one shape or form now for for 20-odd years. What I see in the third sector is a whole range of people who are committed, who are passionate about tackling social inequality and poverty in in its many guises. Um, There are a lot of middle-class people in there as well. There's no, no question about that. Uh, and and I think where where Darren's uh, analysis was was quite pointed was about the way that we seek to try and involve people, mm-hmm. particularly people who are who have uh, experience of poverty, and find those solutions. I think that's something that has changed, though. Uh, and I know Darren has been part of things like the Poverty Truth Commission. Um, our own work over twenty years has has sought to involve uh, people with lived experience. So it's it's it's. A a representation of the sector that parts of it I recognise, but I mean a lot of our members are grassroots community organisations who um, intimately involve people who are benefiting from their services in the design and development of those organisations. And they're they're ones that I think uh, Darren would highlight in his book and and in his new TV show has has profiled a lot of those organisations. But I I think to... to, um, Identify many of those uh, organisations as a as a poverty industry with a with an interest in that 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 does that that doesn't ring true for me. Um, Deborah, that 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 thing about lived experience, which um, you know, I think Peter is accepting that that Dunn correctly identified as a as, as a problem when it wasn't when solutions weren't coming from the people who they were intended to 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 help. Um, is that is that a lesson that's been learned? Do you think? Um, I certainly think for JRF, we are very acutely aware that a bunch um, of well-meaning, well-intentioned, as Darren describes it, people um, constantly banging on about what the research tells us isn't achieving the um, impact for people in their real lives that, that is necessary. So JRF is on a bit of a journey itself. It's changing how it does things. It is trying to walk alongside people with direct experience as equal partners in the in the design and policy creation process. Um, and as somebody new to the organisation, I can say that I've certainly been steeped in it since I arrived. Um, I think it's true to say there's still a long way to go yet. It's not part... There's a lot of great talk, in, particularly in Scotland, around involving people with direct experience. But we are if we're honest, all feeling our way and it is not absolutely part of the mainstream yet. So it's something that we are all attempting to do and we're trying to do it in a way that isn't tokenistic, that is there for the long term, um, that will really provide a positive experience for the people that we're working with. Um, And that takes a bit of thought and a bit of time and a bit of resource. It's not something that you can just turn on and off. So I'm actually quite proud of the work that my colleagues, uh, both in the organisation and out with the organisation, are doing. It's probably worth saying, though, that I love the fact that Darren 
everyone has brought a spotlight to this. I think it's really important that you have a diverse range of voices, that it isn't just people that sound like me that are talking about this stuff. So we know how important it is that authentic voices, angry voices, people who disagree with us are are blowing open that debate and bringing bringing real people in the public along with them because that's how we'll get social change. So I think all the people that I work with, including Poverty Alliance, would agree that it is great that he's given that, he's really sort of given a a platform to this issue. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I think there's the other thing that um, Poverty Safari and and all of the associated work has managed to do is, is highlight it's not, it's about power as well. Poverty isn't a thing on its own. It's connected to the way our society is organised overall. And I think what Darren McGarvey has managed to do is 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 look at the the, the sense of powerlessness that comes alongside poverty. Mm. And he's focused that in, in particular communities and the way that some organisations work in communities doesn't do enough to um, enhance the the empower uh, to to empower uh, people living in those communities to take action themselves. I mean, I would hope um, Deborah's just talked about GRF's experience. I mean, I think all of us can do better in that respect. And I think the, the Poverty Alliance um, works with people to try and ensure that they lead, that they that the solutions that they want to uh, to highlight to poverty are are the ones that um, the ones that are foregrounded. But I think a lot of what Darren is talking about is big fundamental shifts in, in power in our society. Mm-hmm. And I think that requires a, a very broad-based coalition to make those kind of changes. So I think that's been really helpful from him as well. I want to, I want to talk about one example, perhaps, of, of uh, the, the voice of lived experience of poverty coming through in in the work. And that was the work of something called the Dundee Fairness Commission. Now, I have to confess, I have a, a, a personal interest in this because I was raised in Dundee in a a, 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 a two-room tenement with no toilet and no bath and no shower. And, you know, my, my father had long periods of uh, unemployment and, and insecure work. So for me, it's personal. Um, but I'm, I'm interested in what the Dundee experience um, tells us um, and what the Dundee project uh, uh, you feel is achieving. I, th- I think the, the the Dundee Fighting for Fairness Commission the, the, and the Fairness Commission that came before that have really tried to put into practice um, the idea that people with lived experience ought to participate in identifying and advocating around the solutions to poverty. So it's taken uh, quite an intensive approach, um, as I understand, to to work with people who have that lived experience to uh, support them through a process where they identify, where they engage with with other members of communities to identify uh, solutions. I remember doing some work um, a long time ago now, it was with the DWP um, back in uh, maybe about 2004, 2005, and I remember uh, one person who was involved in that saying it's it's much more difficult for a DWP official to tell me uh, to tell me my ideas are no good, someone who was living on a low income, than it is to tell you. Mm-hmm. You know, I can be fobbed off. Peter Kelly of the Poverty Lines can be told by a DWP that's just not going to work. That's not practical. When someone who's living on a low income is telling uh, at this point it was a senior representative of the DWP, this is what I need. It's very difficult for that official to say. No, your your experience doesn't count. You're, but 
we we need a, a wide coalition. I think Dundee are doing amazing things in building that. Okay, I, I, th- I think we have an interview here from uh, with two of the Dundonians involved called Adele and Andrew, who are members of this commission and uh, are talking about its work. I'm delighted to have Adele and Andrew joining us to talk about their experience of the commission in Dundee. Andrew, do you want to say a bit about how we worked the first part of the commission and what happened? Yes, so for the first six months, the remunerated commissioners we all spoke about our issues mm. and after each meeting we would then after listening to the stories we would then take some time to think about what we heard mm. and then after that we came up with about six themes okay. and we all then voted on for our top three okay. so our top three were stigma money and mental health. So what were the next steps after we picked our themes? Um, the next steps were we were split up into our working groups. Mm-hmm. I was part of the stigma group and we went out into the community and got the opinions of people and people in power yeah. on what should change okay. in Dundee. Great. And was part of it talking to people in the community as well and hearing what their experiences were? Yeah, I spoke to a bunch of frontline staff to get their experiences of like stigma in yeah. in their workplace and working with like working with like seeing people customer seat stay to see what issues they thought. Yeah, yeah. Like draws us to like be like in poverty and needing the help. Yeah. Yeah. And so we gathered all that information together and each of the working groups really had quite a lot, didn't we? I mean, we we did a lot of conversations in the community, a lot of focus groups, a lot of interviews, um, and each group gathered the information together. What happened then? What did we do with that information? We put that into a report. Into a report, and that would be this report. Um, Do you want to say a bit about what what the report has in it then? So the report has in it all our, all 12 recommendations that we have, mm-hmm. but and then it then goes into a bit more detail of each working group, yeah. of what we act, how we, the information that we collected, and the, like, the thinking of behind all, everything in, all of all, of all our recommendations. Okay. That's great. And these recommendations were positive changes that could make things a bit better in Dundee, is that right? Yeah. Yes. So what has now happened to the report and recommendations? So we had a launch event for the report back in November and we had a bunch of people drum along for us to launch it Mm -hmm. and... I think it was a really good event. Absolutely, yeah. It was great. We had about 100 people yeah. at that event, didn't we? Yeah. It was a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But also took it to the Dundee Partnership, who have taken all the recommendations on board and put them in place. Which is brilliant. It's really exciting. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Then we went and met Aileen Gamble, and I have no idea what her t- official title is, but it was her department who gave us some of the money to actually make this commission happen. So we took our re- report 
and told her what we've done. And we got a wee tour around yeah. the Parliament, didn't we? And that was quite fun as well. We yeah. got to go and see where everybody sits, where Nicola Sturgeon sits. Yeah. So that was good. Um, great. Yeah. We've also took it to the Dundee City Council Resources Committee. Mm -hmm. And they've also took their... Um, They're taking the recommendations. Yeah. <laughs> they took the recommendations and took them on board yeah. and they're putting something into action as yeah. well. And they have the money. Yeah. They're in charge of the money. They have all the money. <laughs> <laughs> so what's the other really good thing that's happened to uh, the recommendations? The recommendations are now part of Dundee's Fairness Action Plan. And thanks to Peter Allen, who's the Community Planning Manager, for actually making all of this happen. Which is fabulous. And as far as we're aware, we don't think that's happened anywhere else in Scotland, do we think? Um, the fact that they're rooted into the Fairness Action Plan for the city, we know that that means that the city has taken them really seriously and they're going to try and work through each of the recommendations. So that's really exciting. Yeah. Um, so what, what has it meant to you to be part of this commission? I mean, we've talked about all the recommendations and what we've done, but actually, what has it meant to you personally, Adele, to be part of this? It's actually meant a lot to me. Um, it's helped me personally get over anxiety, um, my fear of meeting new people. <laughs> I've made a lot of friends through yeah. doing this and I'm just glad that we're able to make some changes in Dundee and I'm hopeful for Dundee's future brilliant. now. That's brilliant. Andrew, what about for you? Yeah, I think just actually meeting people and actually knowing that what we've done over the last 18 months, estimated trains in Dundee and what we've done, like, just the next steps now, mm -hmm. like, I'm excited for it as well. So, let's talk about the next steps then, because th this isn't the end, is it? No. no. So, what is happening now? What are we doing now? Because you've not got rid of me, so <laughs> what are we doing now together? So, we are now trying to get us ourselves into an independent group now, called Dundee Fighting for Fairness. Mm -hmm to make sure that our, our report, along with the action plan as a whole, mm -hmm. is being taken forward by the Dundee Partnership. Fantastic. So, there's a bunch of us working together. Um, what are we working on right now? We are trying to get um, a... The constitution. Yeah, the constitution up and running. Torture, isn't it? Yes, it is. <laughs> so we've got to the dull bit of what we do. Yeah. Um, but once that's done, independent group? Yeah, and hopefully we could make changes happen in Dundee. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the one good thing about the last commission as well is that Dundee's, Dundee City Council has put more money in for another commission. So. Absolutely. There's a, another commission running right now with new commissioners, community and civic commissioners, um, and, and meeting now and starting the process again. So there's, there's more of you guys around, which is great um, and great. So excited about the future, excited yes. about what's coming, um, and we'll keep working together to make uh, Dundee a fairer city. Yeah. yeah. Great, yeah. Thanks. thanks. No problem. Deborah, listening to that interview, I was struck by the fact that money wasn't their first priority. Um, you'd have thought that for people in poverty, money was the thing that they were after and that was important to them, uh, the number one issue. But it wasn't. It was stigma. What do you take from that? 
Well, that's a very familiar story, actually. We hear that a lot. That's not to say that money isn't important. It's a necessary part of people being able to meet their very basic and essential needs. So you can't dismiss that entirely. But we do hear over and over again when we go out and speak to people that it is the stigma. It's that at so many different levels, it's the everyday stigma that people experience that really makes it exceptionally difficult for people. So the way you're treated by the school, the way you're treated by the health services, the way you're treated by the housing office, um, these sort of interactions, daily interactions can be just as difficult as managing without enough money. So it's it's not entirely it's not entirely surprising, um, and it's not just on the day to day business. It's the stuff that people see in the newspapers. It's the stuff that people see um, on the television. It's the images that um, are used when you when you see stories about poverty. It just reinforces a set of stereotypes about people who live in poverty, which are not helpful. Yeah, Peter, what, what are the wider lessons for us? I was struck with something you said earlier on that the the having someone with that lived experience talking directly to a decision maker, a politician, a, a policy maker um, a, is, is far more powerful. So this is more than just a kind of cons- cosmetic um, uh, uh, factor. It is actually has a, a structural benefit. It, it does. And I think, as, again, as Deborah has said, you know, the stigma comes up for for very real reasons. You know, this is something that's, that's important to people. This is... Uh, very much the lived experience of of individuals, but also sometimes of communities as well that are stigmatised and excluded um, because of their association with poverty. But I think what we're beginning to see in Scotland is where that that direct lived experience is starting to really translate into into policy, both at the mm-hmm. the local level and at the national level, and changing the way that uh, ultimately that we do things and the way that we deliver services. So the there's good uh, experience coming out from Dundee there, but we could look at um, services in Glasgow where, again, people with lived experience have, have suggested different ways to do things. Um, some of the work that, that we've been doing around food insecurity in different parts of Scotland where, again, people with lived experience have been proposing different ways of doing things starting to be implemented. And I guess probably the, the best example is around our, our new social security system in Scotland where a new social security charter has been... Uh, to use the, the the language co-produced with people living on low incomes and really led by people uh, with experience of the benefit system. And I think that will, I hope it will fundamentally change the way that people engage with that service and and the way that that service engages with them and, and to everyone's benefit. Yeah, because th- there was a challenge for the new social security system, wasn't there? That the, 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 the old one was... Uh, Loathed, I think, is not too too strong a word by people. So the the, the, the it was it was how do you get round a, um, a perception that was meet the new boss same as the old boss, you know? And uh, how do how do you get um, how do you convey the sense that this was a new ethos in social security? And that's the secret, you think? And, and I think that's that's one way of doing it. You know, setting out a, a different set of principles which are going to guide that that new agency. And for the people who are working in that agency to really understand them, really take them on and act them, it also requires policy direction from uh, from the most senior levels to make sure that the, the rhetoric matches up to people's experience. And so far, I mean, it's very early days, but so far uh, the evidence is good and people do seem to be uh, reporting a really good experience from that. Deborah, what do, you, what do you do when the lived experience and the voice of the people you're talking to and you're working for... Um, 
come uh, comes back to you with an uncomfortable message? I think inevitably people will have different will have different views. I think some of the work that JRF is doing alongside people with lived experience, though, is showing the value of getting down to basics and understanding why, understanding the context for people's wishes and beliefs. Um, and I think there might come a point in the future where the objective evidence or the research evidence might point to one thing and, and other communities might feel differently. And we'll have, to, we'll have to balance those things because it's important that people's real concerns are heard and their views and their opinions, whether they're comfortable or not, are properly represented. And then there's a, there's a process that all of us in this space, in the policy development space, have to go through in order to balance all of those interests. So I, I don't think we should be frightened of people having different views to us, because if the power of our evidence is, is good enough, if our ability to um, ensure that people have access to the same kinds of opportunities as everybody else, if our response to those things is good enough, then I think we'll take people along along with us. Yeah. And Peter, you seem, you, you think we need to change the story we tell yeah. about this sector and about these people's experience, I mean, and challenge some of the stereotypes. Um, uh, what, what did you have in mind when you're thinking about that? Well, we, we know, um, particularly in the last 10 years, that there's been some really quite awful representations of, of communities that are uh, experiencing poverty and, and more likely individuals that are living on low incomes. Those are things that 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 we think need to change. But I, th- I think, you know, so that that's a, a question of media and a question of representation in, in the media. But I think there is there's a more fundamental um, issue which partly is what Challenge Poverty Week is, is trying to get at, is what is the... What's the narrative? What's the way that we talk about poverty, about the possibility of solutions? Um, we know that, um, again, from the research that, that GRF have done um, and have sponsored, that people tend to have quite fatalistic views about poverty. They tend to, or some people, many people have, have those views, uh, or they might believe that it's something that perhaps um, isn't so significant anymore something that might be associated with the past. So it's trying to change some of those beliefs, trying to engage with those beliefs as they are, but trying to shift them, to put them onto a position where we say, I mean, again, going back to uh, our status as organisations, we have, we, we, we've been set up for a reason. Uh, we've been set up with, with a purpose and with mission, um, and that's to to reduce, to end poverty. So it's, it's about trying to get more people to see that that's feasible, that that's possible, that's something that's achievable. And so changing the, the discussion around poverty is going to be essential to doing that. Yeah. I mean, we in Scotland have, I think, what's the phrase, a good conceit of ourselves. You know, we we, we like to think of ourselves as a, a society that's communitarian, that's compassionate, that's, that's, uh, that's just. And yet, here in Scotland, we have, we tolerate inequality and poverty and blighted lives uh, on a vast scale. I just wonder, uh, you know, are are we are we flattering ourselves as a nation? I think the the hard evidence would tell us that, um, in in the context of the rest of the UK, our our beliefs, our attitudes about social security, about what we need to do to tackle poverty, there's some differences. They're not hugely significant. I think we still do have. Um, a big challenge to to shift people onto that 
place where they believe that there are, there are the the kind of changes that organisations like JRF and the Poverty Alliance want to see are actually feasible and practical. I think what's really great about Scotland, though, is that I do think that genuinely um, our politicians are people who want to see that social change happen. And so I think we've got an opportunity in Scotland to do something and push a little bit harder. I absolutely take the point that public attitudes still do need shifted here, but we do have an opportunity because I think the political class are open are open to it. Um, and I think there is a little bit of a shift. I, I get a sense there's a little bit of a shift because the reality of poverty and inequality is impinging on the middle classes and it's it's impinging on everybody's life. You can't walk to the station in Glasgow or to Edinburgh without seeing the very real, you were talking about, you know, the real impact on real human beings. It is literally sitting in the doorways and uh, that's not the only bit of poverty that we want to tackle, but it is now very, it is very visible. But I think that gives us an opportunity as well as being a horror. It is also an opportunity because we can take that sense that ordinary people have got that this is a significant problem. There is a recognition that we do have a significant problem in Scotland. We've got an open door with our with our politicians and elected members and we've got a story as Peter says we've got a clear story to tell about what some of the solutions are I think that's a great place to to get moving Deborah do you detect an openness a willingness to listen to the voices you're trying to project um, in are we still talking political class yeah, are you talking uh, the general political. public well let's talk about both <laughs> Uh, yes, no, I do. I do see a real sense, um, notwithstanding that the the bandwidth is being taken up, as you say, by the the sort of constitutional issues at the moment. I do see a, a real a, a real shift um, because I think that people see that when you involve people with direct experience, you get you get better decisions. You get some of the problems that we that we face reframed in a really helpful way. So um, we we heard from uh, the Dundee folk. Um, I think there's a really interesting parallel with um, what's happened around care experience to young people in Scotland. So that was a movement that has completely redefined what the problem is. Um, and that has been led entirely by young people with experience um, of care with a support organisation walking alongside them, making sure that, that they're protected through that process. And so it's great. So if the professionals were redesigning the care system, they would talk about um, how much it costs when you have to place a youngster out with the local authority area. They would talk about um, permanency and how long it takes to do these things. When you got young people in the room and said, you know, what needs to shift about about the, the, the whole system of being looked after by the state, they said, there's no love in it. Young people deserve love. How can you build a system that is supposed to take us out of difficult and dangerous situations and, and there's no love there? You know, there's perfectly competent cold care, but there's no love. Um, and you separate us from our siblings and you disrupt our lives. And it completely broke open how we think about what the care system is. Now, it's not to say that people hadn't been thinking about these things in the past, but they hadn't they hadn't focused their redesign. Um, and I think there's a real opportunity in Scotland to do that with lots of services. And, th and that that's the that's the win. So if we if we can encourage both local players and national players to really start mainstreaming this idea about co-producing policy and practice improvements alongside people with lived experience, I think we'll be able to see some other seismic but changes. The people who are the who are the working poor um, perhaps don't identify themselves as poor. Is, is that a problem as well that, that you have to kind of 
almost people to, to identify themselves with with something that they would largely see as a problem affecting someone else. Yes, they're, they're subject to the same narratives that the rest of us are. So those sort of default images, as Peter says, appear in their heads too. But yes, absolutely. Two thirds of, of folk in poverty are working. They're, it's not a, it's not a, um, unfortunately, a, a minority sort of experience. So um, I think it is important that we that we get the get the facts out there and, and start talking about poverty in a way that, as Peter says, does talk about structural issues and not the sort of slightly lazy stereotypes that that we've got we've got to deal with at the moment. So um, just to follow Peter's point about the need for a social movement, I wondered if I could ask Kenny a question, um, which is how can we in the third sector work more effectively with, with the media and still protect the people that we're walking alongside who have direct experience? So there's, a, there's often a lot of interest in from people that we work with in the media for human stories, for, mm. for real life people. And I worry sometimes that we need to find a better balance to protect protect them um, in that process. So have you got any advice for us about how we could build the movement and and use media as our allies? Yeah, I, I think there are, there are many misconceptions in the third sector about what the press and the media is actually for. It's, it's not there to do PR. It's not there to propagate a message. It's not there to highlight good works. It's there to um, inform, in some cases, entertain and uh, engage the reader on the reader's own terms. Um, and you know, it's it's not a journalist's job to prevent to present a sanitised version of any topic or any debate. And um, in fact, that that's the opposite of what we're there to do. We're there to convey an unvarnished reality. And Warts and on, and there's sometimes a conflict between what between that purpose and what you guys are trying to do to when you're trying to promote a certain initiative, or if the government has come out with a policy which needs illustrated with in human terms, which are you know is a very good instinct to have, but that there's 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 a that the, you will encounter a resistance in the media to because that sometimes feel like we are being played by either the politicians or the, the third sector or or whatever interest group is trying to convey a message through through our medium. Um, so I think it's uh, the, 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 there's a tension there which I think it would be it would be useful for all to recognize um, the, 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 the fact that journalism is very stretched at the moment and um, there are a few uh, spare reporters the reporters cannot you know, um, uh, spend a day, a day and a half, and 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 getting coming to terms and with the subtleties of of any of any issue really, they have to treat it um, uh, sometimes as a as a as a hit and run as we call it in the trade, mm. um, <clears throat> and often you know the, the 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 there's there's a there's a there's an opportunity for third sector organisations to get to get messages through that might otherwise be subjected to more journalistic scrutiny if we had more time in a, in a better funded press. It's a really interesting perspective. I suppose the, the thing I might challenge back, though, is that the media are responsible for maintaining some of those images that, that we 
find troubling or stereotypical. And because they are under pressure, because they're under time deadlines, there is a tendency sometimes to default to images and tropes that are not particularly helpful. Mm. So I think I'm hearing we need to do a little bit more to help you do that. But there are also some really helpful things that media partners have done. So the PTC in Glasgow, for example, worked, I think, with the BBC, but I may be wrong about which provider, um, to, for example, switch off the comments section when they were when somebody with direct experience was giving their testimony as it were about a particular issue so they did some things to work with us to help protect that person from trolling and and all the rest of it so i think there are ways that we could work together better that i just sort of it's really interesting yeah i I think that thing about switching off comments underneath um first person experience is a very interesting it's the first I'd heard of that is when you when you raised it in some of the discussions we had before this program and and I, I think that the the, the the whole thing about mediation of comments below articles in the press is still in, in its infancy infancy and there are different approaches there's pre-mediation there's post-mediation you know there's all kinds of um, uh, ways of doing it uh, but I think that's a very legitimate um, uh, point and it's one that I personally will take into account mm. I think I think there's also just the the big challenge of getting the media's interest. Like you say, you know, if if the third sector is seen as promoting a cause, promoting a line, um, it's difficult to to get journalists to see beyond right. Okay, that's not a bad news story. Mm-hmm. There's not a crisis there. There's not a problem for someone in government that we can then uh, go after them on. You know, so one of the shortest interviews I ever did was after the Scottish government announced the Scottish child payment recently, and um, I was able to say, "Yeah, we welcome this. This is great." And that was like, okay, end of end of interview. Uh, we don't need any, anything more if that's all you're going to say. Um, so, so there's something about trying to, I guess, Darren McGarvey to go back there. His his recent series allows him at least the opportunity to probe into. Um, some of these issues in a bit more depth um, and it'd be good to think about how how we present those kind of, whether they're good news or just whether they're ongoing stories to the, to the media a bit more effectively. My advice would be don't present it as good news <laughs> 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 because I'm sorry but that's not what journalists go looking for. We are not uh, happy, smiley people going looking for sunshine. That's 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 not how we define news. Um, but anyway, that's that's very useful to know. Thank you. So, um, from both of you, what would you like people to take away from this podcast today? I mean, Deborah. I'd like people to take away some some sense that A, there's a job that needs to be done. I'd like them to know that B, there are some solutions around work, around housing and around social security that mean that we can achieve poverty reduction. It is a choice um, and they could lend their voice to the kind of campaigns that Peter and his colleagues are running in Challenge Poverty Week to make sure that we alert our politicians to how important we think these issues are um, and get the public support that will be necessary to put the policies in place that can shift it. Mm-hmm. Peter? Again, just to echo what, what Deborah said, really to lend their support to uh, whatever activities are going on um, during Challenge Poverty Week, but beyond that, this isn't something that's solved in a week. Uh, I think we know that, um, unfortunately. Um, there, are, there are activities going on in communities across Scotland. Uh, there are things that people can get involved in in those communities that will help mitigate, will help um, tackle poverty in the short term. And through that, we can build up a, a movement. And that's that's what we need. Uh, if we look at changes in, in 
public attitudes towards a whole range of, of social issues over the last 30, 40 years. It's been about building movements, about building coalitions of those who are directly affected alongside those who are not um, to bring about change. And that's the kind of movement that we need for uh, tackling poverty in Scotland. And initiatives like Challenge Poverty Week will play a small part in, in helping build that. Okay, uh, Peter Kelly, Deborah Hay, thank you very much. And thank you, podcast listener, for your time today. From me, Kenny Farkerson of The Times, goodbye. Goodbye.